0: Everyone and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Brianna Holt, who is the author of the book In Our Shoes: On Being a Young Black Woman in Not So Post-Racial America, published by Plume, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Brianna Holt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about your book. I think it's so important to talk about the experiences of young Black women today. And so your book, In Our Shoes, it uses your experiences, research, and the experiences of others to discuss the challenges of young Black women. And so I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, introduce us uh, to you and how you came to write this book.
1: Yeah, Um A quick intro of myself would be I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, um, was born and raised in Dallas and attended university in Austin and have been living in New York ever since, working as a journalist and then eventually transitioning to an author and screenwriter. Um, I first started writing this book, got the idea for writing this book during the summer of 2020. Um, it was the height of COVID, it was the height of the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, there was a lot of civil unrest regarding the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, etc. Um, and I was quarantined in Dallas with my mom um, at her house. And during that time, I was working as a freelance writer, freelance journalist, covering a lot of uh, issues surrounding race, social justice. Um, an identity mostly pertaining to that of black woman. Um, and the only thing to do during that time, besides watch Netflix and just stay inside your house um, was to do work. And so I was reading my articles, the drafts of my articles out loud to my mother um, every time before I would submit them to my editor. And I realized during this time reading these articles aloud to my mom, who is 43 years older than, than me. That there was this lack of understanding of what I was talking about, the terms that I was using, uh, the modern terms and phrases that we have developed um, to explain the hardships and the struggles and obstacles that Black people and specifically Black women are facing in America. And so I realized if my mom was so unaware of a lot of the modern issues um, and oppressions of young Black women in America, and she is a Black woman herself, then Perhaps, and for sure, other demographics are not highly aware of what black women, um, young black women are up against. And that's kind of where the idea for this book came from, um, to really detail what it is like to be a young black woman in not so post-racial America.
0: Great, thank you so much for that, um, for that introduction. And so I was gonna ask another, my next question was gonna be about um, something you've already you touched on in the introduction, which is um, in the book, you, you talk about generational differences between you and your mother. And in the book, you wanted to highlight the obstacles and challenges of, of young black women of your generation. And you mentioned these terms that like your mom had never heard of before, like um, that young black women have to contend with like unconscious bias, virtue signaling, um, black scent, a uh, cultural appropriation, um, which we're going to talk about next. Um, and so I wanted to invite you to, to say more um, if, if you want about these generational differences um, and, and how you see them um, in, in your, in your approach in the book.
1: Yeah, for sure. One um, term that I, think about immediately what you mentioned is a black scent. I remember reading an article to my mom that I was writing about, um, cultural appropriation and black sense. And she was like, what is a black scent? And really describing to her that, um, in the social media and the digital age, there are so many non-black people consuming black content, um, from black creators and then developing and taking on this type of presentation, um, in a comedic way, it's almost very. In, in the book, I compare it to menstrual um, shows, menstrual and how it's kind of this idea that non-black people, specifically white people, can um, perform or portray themselves. Um, as Black people and wear Blackness as if it is a costume and then easily take it off when it is no longer benefiting them and not experience the same struggles and obstacles and oppressions that the people they are mimicking experience. And so what I realized, a lot of these terms, it was, it was much more that my mom just had never heard of them, but there are so many similarities in what we are experiencing in the digital age and social media that did exist before, and they've kind of just transformed um, to fit the modern standard, to fit the world that we live in now. Um, I talked about tone policing, and that was something that while my mom, when I described it to her, she realized, oh, I actually probably have been tone police before, but it wasn't really being discussed because when she was growing up and starting her career and entering the workforce, um, this idea to really position yourself close to whiteness and just follow white professionalism was an act of survival and an act of an idea of being able to move up the social ladder and um, the career ladder within your, within your job. And so what my generation has started to realize is that hasn't really created anything positive for us. This, um, this idea of code switching and really just pushing yourself down and creating like a very um, subtle version of yourself in order to, it really just benefits white people and makes them more comfortable with your presence in the workplace. But black women are still highly unpaid. We're still highly unemployed. Um, We don't receive the same raises and promotions as our white counterparts. So it really shows that the code switching and all of these things don't really necessarily benefit us as we've been made to believe.
0: Yeah, I think that um, economic aspect of some of these issues that you talk about really came out in the book, um, as well as the you know the effects that they have on uh, on Black women. And I like how you just talked about those parallels too. It's not that these issues are are brand new. Um, Women, Black women, may have experienced them in the past, but women now are talking about them so much more. And I think that's what's so important about about your work and what you're doing. Um, And so in chapter four, you discuss, um, or no, I'm sorry, in chapter two, you discuss cultural appropriation. And I really wanted to touch on this because I thought it was important because many of my students in my classes will talk about this. Many of my young Black women students will um, bring this up. And and this is a common theme that, that they will talk about as a problem for them. And you write, for example, how Black styles and dances can be denigrated when Black women perform them, but celebrated when white performers uh, per, like perform them on national media. And so I wondered if you could talk about cultural appropriation and why it's a challenge to young Black women.
1: Yeah. So cultural appropriation is this unacknowledged um, adoption of an element or elements of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. And this is especially controversial when members of a more dominant cultural culture, culture appropriate, um, from minority cultures or communities. And it's such an issue for black women because everything from the way that we look and present ourselves, um, in terms of style and fashion and, the, and our phenotype, the way we look physically to even the way that we talk, um, the way that we verbalize our mannerisms. We have seen every part of the black woman being appropriated by more dominant cultures. Um, yet at the same time, these are all things that we have been targeted for, made to feel unattractive for, ugly for, have been passed and overlooked, um, overlooked by for. And so it's such an issue specifically for us because we are able to see how, especially when I think of like entertainers and artists, um, it almost is necessary for non-Black entertainers um, to kind of embody Blackness in order to succeed, in order to move up, to climb up the social ladder and to gain followers, whether it's an influencer or a music artist. And we see how Black women at the same time are penalized for these same things that other people are taking and appropriating. I think of Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B and all of these Black performers who have been penalized and talked negatively about because of their bodies, because they're curvy, because of the dancing that they do, because of twerking, um, and being hypersexualized because of these things. And then I mention in my book a specific example. Um, I can't remember her name right now, but this white performer who, I think her name was Lexi Pantera, but I, I could be wrong, um, who Netflix did an entire special on because she created a, a twerk out camp, a twerk out business that has turned her into a millionaire. And the majority of the people who sign up for this class, at least as it as looks in the Netflix special, um, are white women who are adopting twerking and calling it twerk out as a, as a workout routine, as something fun and liberating to do as long as you're paying for it as long as there's a fee and we're doing it privately in this class um but when black women are posting videos of them doing these same dances on whether it be on social media or in music videos we are seen as Jezebels we are seen as ratchet we are seen as ghetto hypersexualized and that's the issue with the cultural appropriation is that white people are able to take things that are very um culturally specific to us you know typically specific to us and popularize it in a way that we don't reap any of these benefits for.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see this uh difference of standards that are being applied to different groups. And you know, the cultural appropriation is an example of that, um, you know, in like popular culture. And you also talk about um kind of different standards of uh, that are being applied to black women in workplaces. And, um, and in chapter four, you know, this is one of the places where you go into work, and you talk about how so often black women are not affirmed in their talents and are penalized for things unrelated to work performance. And in that chapter, um, one of the stories you tell is a review that you received that you thought was unfair from your boss. And I think it was about you not being a team player. And I wondered if you could talk about this review and um, how you responded to it with your boss. Yes,
1: uh, one of my uh, very first media jobs here in New York, I this is the first one that I really realized a lot of Black women do not feel safe in the workplace and safe in terms of job security because we feel like we are being... Watched, um, we feel like we're, we're being surveillance much more than our coworkers and our counterparts, um, but also not safe in the sense of being able to present our authentic selves. We feel like as soon as we walk into that office in that workplace, we have to present a, a version of ourselves that um, falls under web decency. And And so, with that being said, I realize when working on this team of all white people, I was the only person of color on the team. I was the only black person on the team. There were a lot of conversations that they would have that honestly just didn't interest me. And I and I think that's normal. And I think that's totally fine. I would imagine if a white person was working at a predominantly black company, maybe BET, there would be a lot of cultural conversations taking place that they just aren't um, tuned into. And so I didn't really have interest in befriending the these people more than the typical employee relationship. We worked together and I I, th- I thought we worked very well together, but I didn't feel like I needed to be their best friend. And I feel like that is something very common, especially um, in white office spaces and white professionalism um, culture is that you are supposed to be best friends with the people that you work with. And I think that's much easier and said and done and, and expected when you fit the majority of the demographic at the workplace, it's much easier to befriend those people, and so there would be many situations where maybe there was an outing uh, that was unrelated to work. Maybe uh, my coworkers would go see a movie, or they would all go out for drinks, and I just didn't want to spend my extra time out of the eight-hour workday um, hanging out with these people. I already spend majority of my day with them, and so I was not attending these events. Also, personally, did not feel safe going to these events, and maybe. You know, with drinking and involved and maybe getting a little tipsy, and having to really watch what I say because what I say might be viewed one way as opposed to this other person on the team. And so I just didn't feel like those were safe environments for me. And so I received a review, uh, two reviews actually. Every time if, um, I would have this annual review, and at, and I was seeking a raise or a promotion. Um, my boss would always come back with, well, there are just some things that you need to work on. And it came down to him finally identifying it as saying that I was not a team player. And I was able to give some examples of exactly how I'm a team player. How I've always when working alongside other people. Um, I've worked alongside, I've worked along with them well. Um, I've turned everything in on time and really had to make him realize that the reason why he wasn't seeing me as a team player is because I didn't want to be his best friend or the best friend of other people on the team. And in that entire experience, I also realized there's just a lack of, I think, even consciousness that many white people in the workplace have with the way that they are, um, with the relationships that they hold with non-white people, with Black people specifically. There's a lack of To him, he probably truly was believing I was not a team player, but he could not, without me explaining to him and really providing this this proof that, no, I actually do my job. Can you give me actual examples of how I'm not a team player? It then finally clicked for him. Oh, she is a team player. I have an issue with this other thing. And he wasn't even able to label it as such. And so that is just also additional work that a Black person typically has to do In the workplace really making the people that they are having experiences with conscious of what these experiences are like for us and conscious of how they are um interacting with us
0: yeah i I, when i read that in the book i wrote i think i wrote you know yes next to your response to him because i thought you were really brave to go up and and to say like you know, these are the ways in which I have been a team player. Can you give me these other examples as to how I have not been? And you really like engaged in a conversation about like, what is this, what does this term mean? And how is, how are you using it to penalize me? Um, And I thought that was so important because so many times these things happen in the workplace in real time and we can't necessarily process them in that moment. And we don't necessarily, we may not know, Oh, this is, this is bias or this is discrimination. And so that's one of the reasons I thought I was just struck by that story and your response. And I know that other young black women and others who read this book will, you know, really benefit from from these stories, because I think they're it's really important to have this, you know, this awareness of of how these things are playing out in the workplace. So thank you for recounting that. And um, thank you for including that in the book. Um, and I know that oh. people who read it will also benefit from that, as well as there are so many other stories about, you know, workplace in the book. So thank you. Thank you. Um, So in discussing these generational differences in obstacles and challenges facing Black women, um, you also, you kind of just touched on this too, you seem to, um, there seems to be a difference in how generations deal with these issues. And so like respectability and and assimilation are tactics that don't seem to be appealing to younger generations of women. Um, I'm an older millennial. And so probably respectability is something that was handed to me as a just sort of stay within these boundaries and, you know, just, you know, just always like do the right things in a way in order to navigate these workspaces and these other environments. Um, But that doesn't seem to be to, you know, hold as much sway anymore. And so how do you see younger Black women dealing with these challenges? Yeah, I see, um,
1: Younger Black women are very much rejecting the notions that have been passed on, um, the ideas and the practices that have been passed on to us from mostly our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers. Um, And the way that we're dealing with the challenges is that we are banding together, whether it be online or I think we're finding more of a sense of community with other Black women wherever we are, whether it be in the workplace, um, whether it be at an event, And because we are so hyper aware and hyper conscious of the ways in which these methods and practices that, again, I'm not knocking them down, that older black women um, have passed them on to us. Of course, it came out of an idea of survival and being able to succeed and move up in a world that has always penalized us. I think we are finding, again, that it doesn't it has not worked. It doesn't work. And we are rejecting the idea that we ourselves can fix the biases that other people place that, that other people have on have toward us. Um, it is completely out of our control. One thing I mentioned in the book is how when I was younger, um, my parents really put pressure on me to wear long shorts. And I always had to wear one piece swimsuits up until I was like, 14, 15. I remember just being embarrassed in high school wearing a one-piece swimsuit still and in early high school. And it was because my parents were like, well, people will hypersexualize you. I would be hypersexualized in a one-piece swimsuit regardless because I am in a black body. I'm in a dark skinned body. And if I was curvier or thicker, I would. it's more likely I would be hypersexualized even more. And I noticed this was not happening to a lot of my white counterparts who were the same age as me. No one was hypersexualizing, or I don't want to say they weren't hypersexualizing white girls, because that definitely does happen, but not to the extent that I saw it happening to myself and my Black counterparts. And I feel like what we are doing is creating um, conversations surrounding these things on social media. Black women, I personally feel... Dominate TikTok, they dominate Twitter, the idea of Black Twitter. Um, We are letting people know and and we are making them aware of the obstacles and challenges we're facing, as opposed to letting those obstacles and challenges um, own us. We are letting people know that we are rejecting it. We are making people aware of them. We are having conversations about it. Anytime something happens with a Black woman of prominence, of celebrity status, or, or a public figure, we we disrupt that with a viral conversation online. I think that's so important. I you probably saw recently, um, Kiki Palmer's boyfriend um, was speaking very negatively about her on social media, and that's so dangerous because as soon as somebody's partner um, or a black man specifically says something negative about a black woman, um, so many other people feel like, well, then I can come and say something too because if our men aren't protecting us. Then, then it already we lose total protection. And so many black women came and called that out, and they were like, "She can dress like this. Yes, she is a mother, and she she has on a long dress. Some parts of it are see through, but it's okay." And we see so many other women, non-black women, dress like this, and no one is hypersexualizing them or calling them Jezebel or slut or hoe or any of these things. And as soon as that happened with Kiki Palmer, when I saw that come out, I knew she was going to be fine because I was like. Black women are about to come for this man. And I think that is the power of social media, is that we now have a tool where if anybody messes with us, we can create a community of people that we don't even know, but all agree on the same issue. Um, And we have those other voices to band together and protect us in ways that earlier generations did not have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that speaks to as what you just said—the power of community and the power of social media—and um, and in you talking about that example of Kiki Palmer, the power of raising our voices raised it all the way to reach like CNN, I think, and and national media outlets where this story became like national uh, national. News. So if you weren't tuned into Twitter and the conversation happening there, you could see it on your local on your like larger media outlets too. So. I think uh, that's a that's a great example Um, and that's a great example of ways to deal with these issues of rather than like internalizing them and feeling um, like you're alone and, and, you know, isolated and dealing with them, leaning into community and other people and trying to, you know, raise the issue and confront it rather than, you know, police yourself. Um, so I think that was, that's a great, uh, great example from the book. Um, and so also in the book, the book I should say is, uh, in our shoes, um, you interview women, um, and in chapter six, chapter six is called burnt the hell out. And, you know, one woman mentions that, you know, black women are not acknowledged in the workplace, uh, for their work. And, and you give these, there are these like poignant stories about other people taking credit, you know, for their ideas, um, and the, and the. Um, perspectives that they that they bring to their team teamwork in the in the workplace, and you know I personally felt seen in these stories, um, even though I'm, I'm a bit older, and I did feel affirmed in my feelings and observations. And so I wondered what you wanted readers to to take away from the material that you present in the book.
1: Yeah, um, from this chapter specifically,
0: either the chapter or the book yeah well i
1: what i mostly overall want readers to take away from this um let me back let me back up a bit i remember when it came time to proposing this book and the biggest thing that you have to think about is who is the audience going to be that is included in the proposal and the pitch and i feel like this book is honestly for everyone and i i felt so weird explaining that to penguin on our call because i felt like everyone probably says their book is for everyone but if we were to split it into two groups it's um For Black women to feel seen and heard and understood and to have kind of proof of their experiences, I found as a Black woman, whenever I was going through something, whether it was in the workplace, in a relationship, um, some experience of racism or discrimination, I was so, I feel so lucky to be able to find an article in a reputable reputable publication, news publication, where some Black woman has the similar experience. It gives you so much power when there is literature, when there is written text, this backing up the experience that you have been through. And so with this book, that's what I hope to be able to provide for Black women. And also just to take the onus away from them to have to explain their struggles and obstacles to someone. It's kind of like, we are always doing that constantly. And it's like, I can just hand you this book if you want to know more about what it's like to be a young Black woman in not-so-post-racial America. I don't have to now take the time to have these conversations over and over again with friends. And I noticed during the summer of 2020, um, many Black women, myself included, were were overextending themselves with conversations with non-Black people, with their friends, with their co-workers, who were all of a sudden shocked or becoming aware for the first time, oh, this is so bad, this is happening. And it's like, yes, and it's been happening, but you're just not paying attention for the first time. And now it's organically my responsibility to make you understand. And so I I became very burned out and tired from just constantly having to have conversations with my white friends. And I was like, I'll start writing articles about this. And so read my articles instead of pinging me with questions about your own history, actually. And so then the other group is, um, so for Black women to resonate, but for non-Black women, non-Black people, older Black women to reflect, Um, because in that way, if they reflect and they are aware of our issues, then they can help us. Um, they can, whether it be older black women can understand why we're rejecting respectability politics and understand that it's not a a battle that we have with older people or us disrespecting our elders. It's us realizing that we need to, um, just reject these opposite reject these ideas um, but then also non-black people and under understanding how to become a better ally you have to understand what we're going through to be able to really truly act as an ally um, and also for black men because in every um, racial demographic men are supposed to be the protectors of those women and many black women feel like there is some type of um battle internal battle that happens within our race between black men and women where we don't maybe feel as supported or protected or understood um because we are both experiencing separate racial challenges and so i think this is a great book as well for black men to read to understand
0: what black women are experiencing yeah thank you that's that sounds um sounds great and i think um and i see all of those all those aspects of the book and i think that i agree with you it is for a much broader audience than black women it can be for everybody everybody who works with black women knows black women also um watches them on tv you know um yeah it's it's really a book that that touches on so many different aspects of you know many people's lives um so i wanted to ask you about uh I guess, how you undertook the the research for the book or, or putting it together. Um, so the book is a mix of like a memoir. And you've also kind of shared this now, like just different experiences that you've had. You also use research articles in the book, and then you do interviews with other black women. So it's a variety of different sources that you, you know, uh, that you bring together to put together the book. And um And I wondered if you could talk about how you came up with this mix of these different sources, how you decided to use these different sources, and um, how you then went about undertaking the research for the book. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. One thing I have recognized um, as a journalist who reports on race, but also just as a Black woman myself, when I have been trying to um, vent to people or explain to people situations and experiences that I've had, is that when Black women advocate for themselves, um, they are met with disbelief. They are uh, met with neglect. They are met with, this isn't true. This is in your head. It's completely rejected. It's very common um, for Black women to experience that. And I noticed in my reporting as a journalist that the articles that I received the least negative comments from or hate mail or emails about the articles that tied in studies um, when pertaining to race. Whenever I would write these opinion pieces um, or think pieces that really just put my story out there, um, I would receive many comments from non-Black people, more specifically white people, saying, you know, well, I know a Black person who this isn't their experience, or I'm a white person, I've never done this to anyone, and this is just your experience. And then when I would write these articles, where I would tie in studies and I would tie in other voices, it's like y- you can't buy facts. That is what so many white people want when it comes to them being able to um, empathize with other people. Is they want proof that this is true and this is real. And it's unfortunate that I mean I think that's a problem in itself. Um, and so I felt that like for this book to be able to be um, re- for people for people to be receptive to it, it would need to include studies and other articles um and research and and factual information and voices of other black women to show that yes this happened to me this uh black woman who at the time when i started writing it was 25 from dallas texas and this also happened to this black woman who is 34 and grew up in new york city which people would consider a very liberal place an open-minded place to show that we are all dealing with these battles um no matter where we are geographically this is this is something that many black women are experienced these are things many black women are experiencing
0: Yeah. And so you are so you just mentioned this um, as a journalist and the kinds of responses that you get. And so you are a prolific journalist and you've written articles for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, uh, GQ, among many other outlets. Um, And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the differences between writing articles and writing a book length, um, uh, a book length manuscript as you as you have here.
1: Yeah, um, there's a f- uh, there are a few major differences that I noticed. Um, first and foremost, when I'm writing articles, I'm mostly writing on a very tight deadline. Um, usually I have less than a week to get these articles out, sometimes only one or two days. Um, so writing a book and putting myself on a one-year deadline was actually very challenging for me um, because I just kept feeling like, okay, what is a routine supposed to be for something like this? I have so much time, but actually at the same time, I have so little time. Um, So having to put myself on a a word count um, goal for every week, I want to write 2,000 words a week or 3,000 words a week. Um, So that was very challenging just getting started in the beginning. I also think with um, articles, it's very easy. I think I had a lot of anxiety about this book originally coming out because it's a book about race. Um, It criticizes um, American culture. It details... um, what black women, the most disrespected women in America, are experiencing. So I, I assumed and I was trying to prepare myself for a lot of backlash, especially given the current book ban state and all of these things that are going on regarding race and um, social justice. And I also expected that I would receive a lot of backlash because I do with articles when I write about race. I'm, it's very common, like I said, for me to receive hate emails or if I look at the comment section, which I really don't anymore to see some negative comments um, or conversations happening on Twitter. But what I realized is a a lot of that backlash exists because articles are, they, they move around so much. It's so easy um, for someone to just read a headline or read like a few um, lines from the intro and immediately say something. And with a book, you actually have to go out and buy it and you have to open it and then you have to take the time to come write something as opposed to just responding to the New York times post in my article. And so this book was actually very well received. I was, um, shockingly, I was surprised, surprised about it. Um, but also very thankful. And I also, the last major thing that I noticed the difference is that, um, with journals and with articles, you can, you can't make changes once the articles are live. Um, but you can make, um, editorial notes. So if something does change, there will be an editorial note at the bottom to let you know it changed there was so much pressure to get this right because it was like, this is permanent. Once this is out, I cannot take anything back. Um, I can't change anything. I, I, I don't want to feel like I regret anything that I put in there. And so there was just so much pressure to try to get it right where there actually is no version of getting anything right. Um, so yeah, it was much stress- much more stressful um, experience in working as a journalist for sure
0: <laughs> oh my god <laughs> well you, you did an yeah. excellent job and I'm glad to hear that the book is is being well received um, I, I really I enjoyed reading the book and um, and I as you know I saw you talking about the book in Harvard uh, bookstore in Cambridge Massachusetts and I thought that crowd also really was receptive to what you had to say so I'm, I'm glad that the the book is finding this positive um, response out in the world um, Thank you. Yeah. And so I was also wondering, you mentioned this again earlier in the interview where um, where you, you talk about how you, you wrote this book kind of during the pandemic and during the, the protests around Black Lives Matter and George, and George Floyd, and, but you also talk about how this generated more work for you in the way of like freelance um, assignments. And I wondered if you had any advice. Um, For young people or young women entering journalism um, or a writing career and or either advice or anything that you've learned um, that you could share with people trying to navigate this, these changes and this uh, terrain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think um,
1: especially women who are interested in journalism or anyone who's interested in journalism. What a lot of journalism schools fail to let their students know about is freelancing. A lot of us think, you know, you you got to land this corporate job at a news publication. Um, and the job market is terrible right now. But there's so much opportunity to write for these publications that you do hope to work for probably as staff one day and start um, writing as soon as possible. And um, when I was getting started, I didn't realize that as a freelance writer, what's really expected of you is to write about your identity, because there is a lack of diversity in the newsrooms um, where they have staff. And so that's why you see these call outs from editors around Juneteenth or around um, some news breaking pertaining to a person of color. Hey, we're looking for a Black uh, freelance journalist to cover this. And so to really tap into your identity, I know some people look at this as, selling out especially i i kind of had an internal uh, mental battle with myself when it came to in Our shoes it was like okay um of course the first book that i am going to write or have to write about. It has to be this book that actually isn't going to be super fun for me to write. I and mean, it has to be about race. And it's for me to educate white people. And I feel like all I've been doing with my freelance writing is only getting pieces where it's, can you write about race? Can you um, educate white people? And I like to write about other things too. I, I write about skateboarding. I write about music. I write about um, culture. And so I felt like, okay, here we go again. This is going to be another project that I have to take on that Isn't super exciting. Um, But I feel like one one thing that I have come to terms with and understood, and I really recognize this a lot when reading about Issa Rae, who is someone who I really look up to in terms of um, writing in general, is that you have to take the opportunities um, that you are afforded because we do live in a society where, yes, I am a talented writer and I can write about many other things, but so many white people still um, control all of these, all of these different publications and all of these different um, platforms. And so for me to be able to get my foot in the door, it might take writing about race, but that doesn't mean that's all I have to write about for the rest of my life. I've already told um, my agent, my next book is not going to be anything similar to this. Um, There is no way. And so this was something that More so, I felt really good about doing because I wanted to contribute to the movement that was taking place. I didn't feel comfortable protesting outside. Um, I didn't feel comfortable um, or I didn't want to continue just writing in the forms of articles. I felt there was so much more to say. And so this was my contribution to that movement. And I can now move forward and work on the things that I want to work on next. And I think that's really important for people to remember when they're getting started in this career. You, You can switch up at any time. You can change um, your interests at any time and what you cover.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And so we will, we'll savor this book that you have, um, put out. And then we'll also look forward to work that you, that you will put out, um, in the future. And I think that leads me to my uh, last question, which is, um, now that In Our Shoes is out, it's been out for, for a little bit. Um, what are you working on on next or what upcoming projects do you have, um, on the horizon, uh, that you that you're looking forward to. Yeah,
1: so um, I luckily I received a screenplay deal pretty recently. Um, what I can say about the film is that it is a psychological horror. Um, but we are on pause with everything right now. I am a member of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America Union, and we are on strike, so production and everything tied to that screenplay is on pause until the foreseeable future. Um, and I also have another deal in the works um, on a scripted podcast, a fictional scripted podcast. So I really am trying to pivot and move into screenwriting and TV writing. Um, I do think another book will come out in the future, um, but I think it would be at least three years before I'd maybe start on another book. I, I I wrote a whole entire chapter about burnout and I cannot Um, now put myself through burning out because I'm just so aware of the negative repercussions of overworking and over grinding. And so I want to allow myself space to write on, to work on projects that are a bit more um, easygoing for me and fun. And I don't want to say rewarding because In Our Shoes was a very rewarding project, but something a little bit more airy and lighthearted before I pick something up like this again.
0: Great. And congratulations on the screenplay deal. That sounds amazing. And, um, and I know you. I'm, I'm here in Los Angeles, so I'm well aware of the of the strike. So um, yeah. wish you wish you well uh, with, with that. I hope good outcomes come and then, you know, you can continue with the with the work. And, um, and we'll look forward to that and the and the possible podcast that you're in the works uh, with as well. So thank you. Um, Great. So I've been talking to Brianna Holt, who is the author of the book In Our Shoes on Being a Young Black Woman in Not-So-Post-Racial America, published by Plume, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.